Thanks for listening to the Waterstone Community Church Podcast. Our calling is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. We are a growing movement of transformed people reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. To learn more, please visit waterstonechurch.org. You probably didn't see, uh, I don't think it was on this, but the title of that uh, TED Talk is, uh, Does Money Make You Mean? And uh, Paul is a social psychologist. They, they do, the, the conclusion at the end is, yes, it does. They do some other experiments that are kind of interesting. They take people who make under $25,000 a year and people who make over $150,000, they put in each in rooms. They give them $10 and they tell them, you're going to meet somebody who uh, is in need, but you're never going to see that person again and you can give them some of your $10 or not. And they found uh, that the people who made under $25,000 gave 44% than the people who made $150,000 or more. They also then took a jar of candy and they would put it in the room. And uh, they told them, this candy is not for you. This candy is for kids who are undergoing another test in a developmental experiment. Uh, um, So it's not for you. And then they just watched how much of the candy people would eat. And the people who made $150,000 or more ate two times the amount of candy than the poor people. Then they took a person, and uh, this was in California. And in California, if someone is in a crosswalk, it's the law that you have to stop. So they took a person, planted him, put him in the crosswalk, and then they watched whether cars would stop or, or not. And they found there was a correlation between the expensiveness of the car and whether or not they would stop. They found out that if you drove an inexpensive, every inexpensive car stopped for the person in the crosswalk. Expensive cars, 50% of them just drove right on through. Money does perhaps make you mean (laughs) because we feel entitled. To give a little hope at the end, he, he said, we also did an experiment where we brought people into a room, poor and wealthy, and we showed them a 45-second clip of childhood poverty. And then we measured their response to someone in desperate need. And when they did that, they found out that the people who made a lot of money became just as responsive to the person in desperate need as those who were poor. And the the point they drew from that is that we need nudges, little psychological nudges to remind ourselves that we're to be compassionate and and generous. And if we get those nudges, they work. Well, this morning I want to give you a bit of a nudge, okay? I want us to talk about money and specifically about giving. Giving. How do we figure out uh, what we're to give? It's an important subject. In fact, I want to begin by talking why we need to talk about money. Um, Because, you know, any (laughs) time a pastor starts to talk about money, everybody gets nervous, right? Um, Pastors get nervous because it it feels self-serving. I mean, you guys pay my salary. I'm dependent on our budget as a church. And 
Not only that, personally, it's convicting. Every time I talk about money, I have to sit down and wrestle with what I'm giving and where my finances are. And am I being generous? I mean, I, I don't like it, to be honest. But I have to do that. And um, yeah, you always worry that people are going to think, oh, money is the only thing you guys ever talk about, right? And it feels sometimes intrusive and, and judgy, Right? Because money, when it comes to generosity, it's not like you ever arrive. Somebody has said, how much should I give? And for most of us, the answer is really more. Right? So we always have room to grow. And in our culture, we're secretive about money. And we'll talk about almost anything else rather than our money, what we give and where we spend it and how we spend it and uh, you know, when was the last time you laid out your budget for anybody other than your spouse? I mean, we don't do that. Uh, growing up in my family, my dad would never tell us kids what my mom or he made. He was afraid that if he did, we'd tell someone. I don't know what, I, I guess the sky was going to fall if we told somebody what he made. I could never figure that out, but it's just kind of, that's our, our, our culture. So we need to talk about it. Here's why. One, money dominates our lives. I, I mean, every day you make decisions. You worry about it. You, you, <laughs> you fight about it. Uh, you decide what to spend, what not to spend, what to save, where to save. I mean, it just, yeah, a day can't go by that you don't have to deal with money. You, it's just part integrated into the fabric of our lives. So you would think we would talk about it all the time if we're concerned about how we live. And, and really what money is, it's a way of encapsulating ourselves. It's a way of taking our time, our effort, our emotion, our passion, our desire, and, and commoditizing it, uh, of making it into a transferable unit. It, and money really becomes a representative of us. It, it, that, that's, in a sense, me. That's, that's an extension of, it, it's a representative of us. That's why in the New Testament, Jesus says that where your heart is, where your money is, that's where your heart is. He's absolutely right, because your heart represents the core of you. Your money represents that heart. Uh, um, I think it's always fascinating at the end of the year, you know, if you take all your expenditures and put them in, in, in Quicken or, or Microsoft Money or Banktivit, whatever you do, always at the end of the year, I push that button and I get a printout of all my expenses. And I've realized that when I'm looking at all those expenses and where I what I gave and what I spent and how I spent it and how much and how much I went out to eat, which kills me. And, you know, I, I'm looking at my heart. I'm looking at me. I don't always like what I see. I don't. But, so money encapsulates this. Money is dangerous. In fact, it's really fascinating that Jesus says, you cannot serve money and serve God. Can't do both. It's an either-or equation. And we go, no, no, that's not true. I can, I can serve money and I can serve God. And we all try, right? <laughs> and Jesus says, uh-uh. Either serve one or the other. In fact, he names money. He says, money's name is this God, Mammon. And it's, uh, it's God. Because money always entices us to worship. And it's so subtle, we don't even know when we're doing it. Because we get sucked in. It's this incredibly dangerous thing. 
When you understand all that, you, you begin to understand why money was one of the favorite subjects of Jesus. One out of 10 verses in the Gospels uh, is about money. 16 out of 38 of his parables, the stories he told, was about money. I mean, about, so about 50% of the time, Jesus is talking about, about money. Um, it, he talked more about money than any other subject, more about money than love, more about money than faith, more about money than salvation. The only thing he talked about more than money was the kingdom. He talked about it all the time. So I'm not sure we should be that reluctant to talk about it. It, it, it is a, a, a spiritual dominating issue in our lives, whether we like it or not. So this morning, I want to talk about money, specifically what we give. And I want to do two things. I want to talk about the easy solution to our giving, all right? We call that the tithe. And then I want to talk about a New Testament alternative, all right? So let's talk about the tithe for a little bit. Uh, the notion that you're to tithe is just this idea that you're to give 10% of your, your income. And, and people love the, the, at least the idea of the tithe, right? <laughs> Because it's measurable. You, you know exactly where you are. It's black and white. You can kind of measure and figure. And because it's measurable, you know if you're doing, doing good or doing bad. And you can kind of get, grade yourself on the tithe thing. It, it, it's great. And it's, it's simple. I mean, yeah, you got to figure out whether you're going to tithe over net or, or gross. But most of us know what our paycheck is. And we can figure 10% of that and, and, and give that so, so it's simple. And it's freeing. I mean, once I give my tithe, I don't have to to worry about anything else, right? Uh, um, And I can feel good about what I'm doing with my money. I don't have to think a lot about it. And pastors love it. You know why? Because it's easy to teach, right? This sermon could be a lot shorter. I could simply tell you, give 10%, save 10%, and 80%, do what with you will. Go home. I mean, that's easy, right? Um, And quite honestly, tithing is not a bad thing, right? I I mean, if everybody at Waterstone tithed, do you know that it would triple our budget? Yep, triple, probably more than triple our budget. Um, And it's a great benchmark. I know Barb and I, even in our own giving, have use the tithe as, uh, as a benchmark when we start at Waterstone, we decided that the very minimum we'd ever give, the minimum, would be at least a tithe to the ministry here at Waterstone. And that kind of became a guy. Now, we do other stuff, and that's changed in terms of amounts, but, but that's always been the minimum. That was a healthy guideline benchmark for us to, to use in our lives. So I don't want to just totally bash the tithe, uh, um, but... I do want to tell you why you don't have to do it, all right? Um, First of all, 10% is not a biblical tithe. I I mean, people go to the Old Testament, say, see, they tithe in the Old Testament, so we should do that in the New Testament. But if you go to the Old Testament and look at the tithe in the Old Testament, you quickly discover that there was more than one tithe. In in Numbers 18, there's the Levitical tithe. You were to take 10% of your money and set your crops and all your wealth and set it aside for the Levites because they didn't have any land. So every year, 10% to the Levites, the Levitical tithe. And then you were supposed to give, uh, Deuteronomy 14 says, the the festival tithe, you were to take money and give it to the temple to help celebrate the festivals, three festivals, Passover and Tabernacles and, um, 
every year 10%. So now you're at 20%. And then Deuteronomy 14 says, not only that, every third year you're to give the, the charity tithe. And that was money that went to the Levites, a little bit more for them, and to the immigrants, the foreigners, and to the widows, and to the orphans, and to the poor. So you begin adding up, and quite honestly, in the Old Testament, if you're going to tithe, and you're going to say, that's what the Old Testament teaches, and that's what we should do, then what you should do is give 23%. I'm fine with that. <laughs> but but we, we don't want to investigate it too much. We'll just stay at 10, right? But here's the problem. The New Testament does not teach tithing. The only time Jesus mentions the tithe is in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, and he's talking to, to scribes and Pharisees who are living under the old covenant of the Old Testament law. And even there, he downplays the tithe's importance. He, he, he talks about issues of mercy and justice and faithfulness are far more important. And the reason you don't see a tithe in the New Testament is that the tithe was part of the Old Testament law. And Jesus filled, fulfilled the Old Testament law. Jesus is like a filter to the Old Testament law. Some things get fulfilled in him and some things come through. The things that come through get reiterated in the New Testament. Things like the Ten Commandments come through. that We're to live those out. But things like sacrificing lambs and not eating pork and circumcising your kids, those, those, are, those don't come through. The tithe doesn't come through. Jesus doesn't teach it. The epistles don't teach it. No place in the New Testament are we taught that 10% is the standard. And quite honestly, I think at times the, the, the tithe can be dangerous. Um, it, it can result in what I call banana giving. I was talking to this lady one time about this notion of tithing, and she, she was very adamant. She says, Nick, God calls us to give him a tenth, and, and the rest is ours. And it's kind of like, you know, you give a little piece to God. Yeah, God, you can have that. Um, and the rest is yours to do whatever you want with. That's not biblical. It just isn't. And part of the danger of the tithe is you do a tithe and then, then you feel kind of I'm off the hook and I feel good and I feel spiritual and it's this false security. Because quite honestly, in the New Testament, God may be calling you to, to way more than a tithe or he may be calling you to way less than a tithe. In fact, that's part of the problem. It, it causes some people to, to do too much and others to do too little. I like what Craig Blomberg writes here. He says the problem with the tithes is that it is too burdensome for many of the poor while letting the middle and upper class Christian off the hook too quickly. So Paul refuses to legislate a percent. Now if you're feeling really good that you don't have to tithe, hold on. Because okay. I think the New Testament gives us an alternative, and quite honestly, the alternative is far more challenging. I want us to go to, to 2 Corinthians 8. Let me give you a little background. The, the church in Jerusalem, uh, because of a famine and persecution, is impoverished. They're just barely getting by. So on his third missionary journey, Paul goes to the churches, especially in Macedonia and then in Corinth, and he's raising money to help out the church in Jerusalem. 
And the church in Corinth signs up. They, they make this commitment that they're going to help um, the church in Jerusalem. The problem is they don't come through with a gift. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul is kind of going after them a little bit, trying to encourage them to make good on the pledge that they made to help the church. And what he does is he begins to give us kind of some insight into the foundation of why we should give and a little bit of how we should give. And it's really fascinating the principle he lays down. I'm going to give you three. There's more in this text than that, but we don't have time for all of them this morning. Uh, But these three stand out. Let's read the text and then we'll come back and look at the three principles. Um, He says, and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Okay, three principles stand out. The, the first is the, the, the principle of generosity. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he, he is going to set a standard, but the standard he sets is not one of giving 10%. The standard he sets is one of rich generosity. Let's look back at the text for a moment. And now, brother and sister, we want you to know about the grace God has given the Macedonian churches. Now, the Macedonian churches were churches in Philippi and Galatia, and, and understand they're poor. <laughs> they're going through their own trial. Things are not good for them. But he says, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now, this word for rich is interesting. It literally means wealth. It's the Greek word plutos. It means wealth or riches or an overabundance. An overabundance. And it's almost a play on words. He's saying they're, they're, they're overabundantly generous. And the word generous is interesting. In our culture, it usually refers to a magnitude of a gift. It was a generous gift. Uh, But the Greek word actually means sincere or a singularity of focus. And the idea is that they were so focused on the need of the churches in Jerusalem that they were going to do whatever it took to help them out. That's, that's the notion of generosity. It's like when your spouse or your, your kid is sick and, and they need a treatment, but the insurance won't pay for the treatment, but, but it, it, it's serious and maybe life-saving. You do whatever it takes, right? You don't know where the money's going to come from, but you'll get it. You just figure, you're just focused on doing what your kid needs or your spouse needs and, the, and all your resources will come to bear on that. That's generosity. And he's saying, look at these churches. They're so focused on the need of the church in Jerusalem that, 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 that they're going to do whatever it takes in terms. In fact, he says, uh, um, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Now, that's a, 
A fascinating notion, this idea of rich generosity. When I come to this passage, I like to think of it in terms of radical generosity because that's exactly what it was. And the generosity has nothing to do with the size of the gift. I want you to think for a moment about two or three generous people you know. I kind of did this and I was uh, listing down people who, who were generous and I realized that the people I had listed were all people who had lots of resources. Because I was measuring generosity by the size of their, they gave, they gave a lot. I mean, yeah, we look at generosity as the magnitude of the gift. That, that they did. They gave a lot. So I just automatically, that's generosity. But here, generosity is not measured by the size of the gift. It's measured by the size of the gift in relationship to what you have. And that changes the whole notion because that means you can be generous whether you're wealthy or poor. Isn't that interesting? Now, here's the thing. Do you know who the blue ribbon giver is in the New Testament? The most generous giver in the New Testament? Who is it? Yeah, the widow, right? Jesus is sitting in the temple next to where they throw money into the the collection plate. And this old lady comes along and she takes two lepton, which are like little two penny copper coins, uh, 128th of a day's wage. Pennies takes two left, which is the smallest gift you can give, by the way. Takes two left arms, throws them in the collection plate, and Jesus goes, "Did you see that? Oh, that was incredible!" And his disciples are going, "What the? Are you talking about?" She just gave the most generous gift, everything she had. See, generosity is not measured by the size of the gift. It's measured by the size of the gift in relationship to what you have. And Paul is saying, hey, that's the standard. The standard of your giving is rich generosity, radical generosity. Wow. Now, now, how did they do that? Well, it has to do with how They went about giving. Notice what Paul says. He says, they understood the issue of ownership. Let's look at verse 5. He says, uh, they gave, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Now, that's fascinating. So when you think about it, really, ultimately, the only thing you can give God is yourself, right? Because ultimately, that's the only thing you have. Everything else is just an extension yourself. And that's where they start. But that's a radical thing. Because when you give yourself, it has implications. Right? There was an old missionary. He was working with a very primitive tribe. And he was talking to the chief and he was trying to share the gospel with this chief. And the chief was trying to impress the missionary. So he, he started giving him animals and blankets and jewelry. And finally the missionary said, look, chief, God doesn't, God doesn't want your blankets. He doesn't, he doesn't want your, your animals. He doesn't want your, your, your jewelry. He, he wants you. And the old chief got this big smile on his face. And he said, oh, you, you have a very wise God. And the missionary goes, what do you mean? (laughs) That she said, oh, because he knows that if I give him me, he gets all my blankets and animals and jewelry. (laughs) And it's true. 
See, we have this misunderstanding about us and our stuff. And the misunderstanding is that it's our stuff. Right? We've been bought with a price. Jesus owns us. And because he owns us, he owns all our stuff. All that I have is not mine. All that I have is his. I think it's a great exercise to go home and start looking around and say to yourself, oh, that TV, not mine. Oh, that chair, not mine. This house, not mine. That car, not mine. That savings account, not mine. That investment, not mine. That kid, you can have him, not mine. <laughs> it's not. But, but understand this. The moment you understand it's not yours, you go from being an owner to a steward, and the whole game changes. Because when it's your stuff, you make the decision about your stuff based on what you want and what you desire, what's important to you, what's going to make you comfortable. I mean, you have control. If you go from owner to steward, all the questions change. Because now it's not about what you want, what makes you comfortable, what your priority is. Now it's about what he wants, what his values are, how he wants to use his money and his stuff. And if you're a steward, you understand that at some point you're going to have to give an account for how you spent his resources, what you did with them. That changes the whole ballgame. Because one of the things it does is typically we think when it comes to spirituality and money that the spiritual issue is what we give. But if it's all his, then the spiritual issue is everything we do with our money. Everything I buy is a spiritual issue. Everything I invest in is a spiritual issue. Everything I save is a spiritual decision. Everything I give is a spiritual it, Because it's not mine, all of it is his. Now here's the problem, folks. We give lip service to that, but we don't live like it. We just don't. We treat it like it's ours. Because if we treated it like it was his, we'd handle it very differently. So you have the issue of generosity. That's the standard radical generosity that comes because of this sense of ownership. Everything I have is his because I'm his. And then he gives them an example to follow. And you see the example is the example of Jesus, verse 8 and 9. I'm not commanding you, but I wanted to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. And here's the other I want to compare you to, Jesus. How can you go wrong, right? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He's talking about the essence of the gospel. Jesus, who existed in the very form of God, emptied himself and became poor and in fact died on a cross. Why? So we who were poor, encumbered by sin, could be made rich in him. And he said, do you understand the core value that's betrayed in the gospel? It's this notion that you deprive yourself for the sake of others. If you watch the TED Talk, it, it really is that money can make you mean because we think that the value is we're to deprive others to, 
for the sake of ourselves. That's the value in our culture, right? We're all about self-interest. We're all about having it my way. We're, we're all about having the world rotate around us because it's about me, isn't it? And Jesus said, no, it's about others. And if you take on that value that says, I am willing to deprive myself for the sake of others, then you begin to understand you're simply a channel through which God's blessings are to flow out. God has blessed us not to consume it on ourselves, but for the sake of his kingdom. Say, okay, Nick, great. That's great theoretical stuff. But what I want to know is how much? Just just tell me. (laughs) Just tell me how much. And I'm not going to tell you because the scriptures don't tell you. But but I'll give you some guidelines. Let's jump ahead to chapter 9 through 7. And Paul gives us some great insight. And it's a little more practical. He says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So three things, practical guidelines. First, uh, giving needs to be personal. Paul says each of you, and what he's saying is, look, nobody gets off the hook here. uh, Giving is not just the, the responsibility of the wealthy. Each of you participates. Um, now, now, oftentimes in a large church, people think, well, I can't give much, so I'm not going to give anything because it doesn't really make a difference. Well, uh, let me tell you that that's not too true. It makes a difference both practically and spiritually. Practically, it makes a difference because every bit helps the church and ministry advance the kingdom. Every bit. Every bit. There, there's no gifts that are too small. But even more than that, it matters spiritually, right? Because if our money encapsulates ourselves, then when we give our money, what we're saying, when we give it to a church or a community or a ministry, we're saying, I'm part of that. That's mine. I'm giving you me. This is your church. This is not Nick's church or the elder's church or Larry's church or the staff's church. It's your church under Jesus. It's his ultimately. And when you give to it, you're saying, that, this is my people. This is, this is my community. This is my church. This is what I'm part of. And quite honestly, you don't want to be a hanger-on. You just don't want to be a consumer. You want to be part of the community. But do you know the percentage? 31% of Christians don't well, give very little or nothing to their local church. That means a third of us in this room almost give almost nothing. It shouldn't be that way. It matters. Second, not only should it be personal, each of you, but it should be thoughtful. He says, you're to give, each of you are to give what you have decided in your heart. Um, In other words, notice he doesn't tell you how much. He says, you got to (laughs) decide. It's like he's saying, you got to grow up. My son, who just got home from Vancouver yesterday, we we had to go to a funeral yesterday, and he came. He said, Dad, do I have to go to this thing? And you know what I told him? That's up to you, dude. You're 27. Grow up. 
you decide. <laughs> You're an adult. Paul is saying, grow up, decide. You, what are you going to do with what God's given you? You have to decide. Now, here's what that means. You know what? You have to think about it. You have to pray about it. You have to discuss it. You have to wrestle with it. It's what's great about it. You just can't say, I'm going to give a tent. No, 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 no. You got to engage. Dang it. Because that's hard. Right? I want somebody just to make it easy for me. And Paul says, I'm not going to make it easy for you. And it's really funny. You know, <laughs> if we're investing money, man, we get a financial planner and a financial counselor and we, uh, you know, go on the internet and we say, what about this fund and that fund and that fund? And we do all our research. You know, honestly, folks, it's far more, it would be far more important to have a spiritual advisor than a financial advisor. Because what you, what you give is a much more important investment than what you save. Right. And then he says this interesting thing. He says, what you have decided in your heart, and heart here doesn't simply mean emotions. Heart means the center of a thing. It means your, your desires, your passions, your thinking, your will. It means the core of you. James K. Smith says that you become what you love. But what you love is not always what you think. What he's saying is, look, your heart ultimately is going to show. But what you think your heart is may not be what it really is. And you can work backwards. You know, you can say, oh, I'm really committed to Jesus. Well, if you're really committed to Jesus, you really love him. You really are about his kingdom. You really care about others. You really care about, that's going to show in what you do with your money because your money represents you. And if it doesn't show, then you're just fooling yourself. You just, you, I'm sorry. You just are. Don't say you're committed to Jesus if your money's not committed to Jesus. Because if your money's not committed to Jesus, you're not committed to Jesus. Just, you just aren't. Oh, you say, okay, Nick, but okay, how do I decide? Let me, get, let me give you two, two words that might help you. I think when we're trying to decide how much to give, what's really important, one thing that's really important to keep in mind is Perspective. This illustration comes from Francis Chan. This is a great illustration, so I stole it. Um, this rope, kind of imagine that it doesn't end there, that it just goes on and on and on and on uh, forever. This rope then would ex represent your, your existence, your, your life in a sense in this world and in the world to come. And the blue part of this rope re represents your life in, in this world. And the rest represents your life in eternity. That's a really important thing to keep in mind when you give, because one of the things that the New Testament teaches is that the things you do in this life and, and what you give in this life makes a difference in this life. You can store up treasure in heaven. You can invest for what's to come. But that's not what consumes us. We get distracted by the lie of our culture and begin to think, no, what matters is this. This is what matters, right? And especially this little piece at the end of this, that really matters, that it's comfortable, that I have good food to eat, that I have a nice place to live. That's what matters. Really? Really? You know, and you get $1,000 and 
got to decide what to do with it. And the people, you say, I'm going to give it away. And people go, well, that's absurd. That's really a stupid thing to do. Give it away. Well, I'm going to give it away because it'll affect it. No, that's stupid. No, 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 that's not stupid. If you think you should spend it here, that's stupid. <laughs> I mean, what really matters, this or this? And we buy the lie that this matters. And we get so consumed that we're safe and that we're secure and that everything is taken care of. When what really matters is this. So perspective, I think, helps when you're deciding. The other thing that helps is this, this thing called proportion. And uh, Paul gets this to this earlier in 1 Corinthians at the end of that book when he's talking about them getting into collection he gives some practical advice he says on the first day of every week each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income literally that that could be translated according to how you've prospered and you save it up so that when he comes no collections would be taken again he's saying be thoughtful I'm not going to manipulate you I'm not going to show you uh, pictures of starving children I want you to consider how God has blessed you and then give in light of that and here's the implication the more you've been blessed the more you give the more he's prospered you the more you give back because the principle under it is that you we I have been blessed to be a blessing, right? And let me tell you what that means. If you make $50,000 a year, then you are part of the richest 1% in the history of the world. That means, well, and in America, 65% of Christians make $50,000 or more. And in our neighborhood, my guest sitting in this room, it's closer to 90%. Let me put that in perspective. That means that you and I are some of the wealthiest people to ever walk the face of the earth. Right? We have been blessed beyond belief. So you would think that our giving would be astronomical, that we would be giving through the roof, that we would just, it would be, we should be overabundantly generous. It's radical. It's, it's all his. I mean, it should be just flowing out for purposes of the kingdom to help the poor to further. I mean, it just, why? that makes sense, doesn't it? We're the richest 1% in all of history. The average Christian in America gives 2.43%. That's wrong. That's that that that's sin. When I preached last night, I uh, had a quote by Ronald Snyder, and I thought, uh, I'm not sure I want to do this. So I didn't have it made into a slide, and then I decided to read it anyways because I had it with me. 
I want to read you that quote. It's kind of in your face. He says, for Christians in the richest nation in history to be giving only 2.43% of their income to their churches is not just stinginess. It is biblical disobedience. It is blatant sin. We have become so seduced by the pervasive consumerism and materialism of our culture that we hardly notice the great ghastly disjunction between our incredible wealth and the agonizing poverty in the world. Over the last 40 years, American Christians, as we have grown progressively richer, have given a smaller and smaller percentage of our growing income to the ministries of our churches. Such behavior flatly contradicts what the Bible teaches about God, justice, and wealth. We should be giving not 2.4%, but 10%, 15%, even 25 to 35% or more to kingdom work. Most of us could give 20% and not be close to poverty. Folks, there's something wrong with our hearts. I mean, this isn't even the radical part of Paul's instruction. In fact, I want to, verse 13 of chapter 8, if we could put that up for a moment. This is interesting. This is just, we don't have time to talk about, but just a seed to plant in your thinking. Our desire, Paul says, is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. What does that mean for people who are the top 1%? I know in America we don't like the idea of redistribution of wealth, but Paul does. what that tells us is we're blessed, not for us. We're blessed to be conduit to others. And if we're not being that conduit, in light of how much we have, something's wrong. So it's personal, thoughtful, and now, now the last thing, it's cheerful. Now that I've beat the crap out of us. You're supposed to do this with a smile. (laughs) It's interesting. It says in that verse that God loves a cheerful giver. The word for cheerful is the Greek word hilaros. What word do we get from the Greek word hilaros? Yeah, hilarious. (laughs) What does hilarious mean? It's an over-exuberance of joy. We're to give, I mean, radically, generously, it's all his. We're going to just give it all away. And hilariously, and you go, Paul, what the heck? How, how can, how can, why does God love an hilarious giver? You know why? Because they get it. They get it that, that their life is not consumed in their stuff. Their security is not in what they have. Their security is in him. They, they get that they're just channels. They understand that what they're given with all that they've been given by God is this privilege to participate in his kingdom and making difference in the world. When you gain that and you, you begin to understand the way you do that is by this absurd thing of giving it away and it just makes you laugh. And that's the point. 
Somebody has said that we're to give until it hurts. Uh, they're talking about sacrificial giving, and I understand that. One pastor said, no, I don't think we should give till it hurts. I think we should give until it feels good. We should give until it feels good because we know the significance of what we're doing and the impact of what we're doing and how we get to... We should give until we smile. Amen? Amen. To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org.